Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear Haley, there will be moments in your life when you'll question your life choices. Don't. Every challenge you'll experience will prepare you to do what is required. You'll be tested immensely, but you'll gain strength and most importantly, empathy with each heartache. There will be moments you'll have to surrender yourself to God's will. Embrace it and trust Him. When the darkness comes, hold on to the light of family, friendship, and the Savior. I wish I could tell you life gets easier with time, and in some ways it does. But you'll be free from the shackles you thought once was a band of promise. Hold on to what you know about yourself. Don't lose her and confide in her. Trust the process of healing. Opportunities will arise because of it. You may know and understand that your Heavenly Father loves you. Go in the way He shows you. Go with kindness. Go with dignity. Go with grace, and you'll be blessed. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being on my podcast. I remember, I think the last time we hung out was right around the time that me and Nate started dating. Yes, I think so. It's been a long time. Yes, and it seems like you have experienced a lot, learned a lot, and I'm excited to learn from you today. Thank you. I'm excited. Excited to be here. I am so glad that we have Haley here today to talk to us about domestic violence. She is amazing. I met her in high school and I'm just really proud of her. She shared her experience on Facebook about a year ago and I private messaged her and just told her I was proud of her for her courage and I am just really grateful that she's willing to share her experience today. It's amazing that she's alive. She is a miracle. And as I was thinking of her and this experience, I looked up a few statistics that I think you might find interesting. You might wonder why domestic violence is something that's important to talk about, but in the U.S., there are 10 million people every year that are victims of domestic violence. 20 people per minute are abused by an intimate partner. 15% of all violent crimes are committed by an intimate partner. Since the pandemic, we've had a lot more increase in domestic violence. For an example, in March 2019, compared to March 2020, the domestic violence cases have increased by 27%. So there are people all around us that are suffering in silence. And I wanted to share this episode today so that we can have a little more awareness for the people around us so we can know how to help and that we can be aware and be able to cheer on those that need the courage and the support to be able to get out of tricky situations. I also wanted to acknowledge the fact that this is a hard thing to talk about. I actually have had a few podcasts set up to talk about this and have had them fall through because it's just such a sensitive topic to be able to talk about but 
the statistics show that one in every four women have domestic violence and one in every nine men will have severe repercussions from domestic violence. So there are people around us and we can do our part in understanding what it would be like to live in their shoes. Regardless of your situation that you're in, there's a lot that you can learn from Haley. You might not have a partner who's abusive emotionally or physically, but there's a few ways I think that you can learn from Haley. You can be smart, get help, trust your gut, protect your family over convenience. And one thing I love about Haley is that she has a sense of humor and she knows how to laugh at herself. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is one of those topics that's I've always just felt like it's really important to talk about. And I'm really grateful that you're willing to talk to us today about domestic violence and all those things. And I know it's a hard topic to address and I know it can be triggering for some people. I think it's so important for all of us to be aware of the people around us and what they're going through and whether it's someone who's going through it themselves or it might be a friend and somebody that can recognize how to help their friends or even just people being in a relationship that there might be red flags to prevent them from being able to to see going into a, a toxic relationship as well. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree. It's definitely one of those taboo subjects that is hard to talk about. And then people who are in it, they don't talk about it. So it can just go on forever without anyone knowing. Yeah. This is kind of this mentality of don't air your dirty laundry. If you're having problems with your spouse, you guys just need to sort it out yourself and not get other people involved. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then you have hope that it can work out. So you don't want to say anything thinking that if it does work out, you don't want your friends and family to hate your spouse. So you just kind of wait to see if it gets better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Haley, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. Okay. So I actually was born and raised in Southern California. My family moved to Kaysville, Utah when I was a junior in high school. Um, so I went to Davis High for two years. I played volleyball there. And as a kid, I am the middle child. So I definitely got blamed for a lot of stuff, but I actually did a lot of things too. <laughs> Pretty crazy, strong-willed, adventurous, spontaneous, kind of the whole middle child stereotype, I would say. A good, a good kid, grew up religiously, and yeah. That was kind of me as a child. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember when you moved your junior year, and I feel like you just jumped right in, and it seemed like you didn't miss a beat and had always been there with everybody else through all the years. Oh, no. My first, my junior was, oh, it was really bad. Was it? <laughs> maybe yeah. I'm just remembering wrong. <laughs> maybe I'm remembering senior year. Yeah, so people thought that because I was really outgoing that I had – like a lot of friends, but oh man, that first year was such adjustment culturally and just being the new person. I didn't feel like the most welcomed my junior year. And I felt like Davis High was a really clicky school. So unless you had friends since junior high, you were kind of 
on the exterior <laughs> with time and meeting people and playing volleyball, like my senior was a lot better, but it definitely took an adjustment that first year coming in. I do feel like big schools too, people can get lost in the crack. Everyone just assumes that everybody else has somebody. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I had a lot of friends in California and I was really involved. So starting completely over was a new challenge, but it was good because when I went to college, it was an easy adjustment to start over again. So I'm grateful for that experience. Where did you go to school and tell us a little bit about how you met your ex-husband? Yeah. So I actually went to UVU for a year and then I ended up at the University of Utah. It wasn't really planned. It just kind of happened that way. So I graduated from the U with a bachelor's in psychology. My last semester of college, I got set up on a blind date, actually by my mother. (laughs) I just got out of a serious relationship. And so she went to work and asked if anyone knew of anyone that was tall because I was five. I'm five, nine. And her coworker was like, yeah, I have a cousin. They Facebook stalked us. He called me and then we went out on a blind date and then yeah, the rest is history. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your relationship and kind of those first years of marriage. To be honest, that first year, I honestly thought I was going to get a divorce. (laughs) It was a huge adjustment between me and my ex. I didn't know it was because in the LDS culture, you don't live together before marriage. And so I didn't know if we were adjusting to living together, but it was hard year. And I think too, my ex was figuring out what he wanted to do. And that was a lot of stress. And I was working full time and I was in a calling that took a lot of my time. So just all the adjustments, but then he decided to enlist in the army. We decided to go for it. And then he left for basic training. So that was nice because I feel like it kind of reset us. So when he got back, we moved to Georgia for seven months for his additional training. It's called AIT. And then we, and then he got stationed at Fort Polk, Louisiana, where we finished his rest of his army career. We were just in for four years. Okay. Yeah. So do you feel like his army experience impacted his aggression or anything? I do. I think the army is stressful and it it owns you. There's a joke and the army is like, the army is the wife and you're the mistress. (laughs) So it's like, you kind of come second to the job. I think it was really hard for my ex to handle all the authority. You have to suppress a lot of your feelings. You're constantly being told what to do. And then, yeah, and if you're a hard worker in the Army, you get more stuff added to your plate. So, And he was a hard worker, so he was constantly doing more than maybe other people in, in his unit. So that added stress. There was a lot of stress around his job, for sure. Nate had a job like that, too. It was like the, the higher up you get, the more stressful it is, the more responsibilities you have. It's like... <laughs> better get out of here (laughs) yeah and then you're up at five and you have to go to physical training and then we didn't know sometimes you would have weekends and sometimes they make you come in for work or sometimes you are out and they call it the field for two to three weeks so it's just kind of like you it was hard to make plans because you just never knew what was happening so tell us about your two kids so I have a six-year-old son named Bronson. He's in first grade. And then I have a five-year-old daughter named Leah and she's in preschool. They're 14 months apart. So yes, I, Bronson was five months when I found out I was pregnant and I 
honestly cried for a long time. <laughs> I cried for months and it wasn't until I had a scare where I thought I was losing her that I realized how much I really wanted her. And that really shifted my perspective and attitude. And I'm so grateful she's here. She's the easiest child. Both my kids are, I'm biased. I'm their mom, but I think they're pretty good kids. And they're both redheads, which is funny <laughs> because I'm not a redhead and neither is my ex, but it runs my dad's redhead and his mom's redhead. So we definitely got hit on both sides. <laughs> well, if you're a mom, you can be biased in looks and different things like that and think your children are so beautiful. Parents aren't usually biased in saying that my children are well-behaved. If you have good, well-behaved children, then you should just be grateful, right? <laughs> yeah, I I am. Uh, I think they're I think they're pretty good kids and I think we've definitely bonded more through this last 2 years. I'm grateful for their love and support through everything. That's awesome. Yeah. So when did you realize that your relationship was toxic? So it actually took me a while. After my son was born, I think my ex was was expecting a huge connection. And then when he didn't feel connected to my son, he emotionally distanced himself from me and Bronson. And so it was like, I was a first time mom. I was living in Louisiana. I had no family there. And then my husband was there, but wasn't there, if that makes sense. And then I had a daughter and then I feel like the anger issues got worse. It was never physical at at that point. It was more emotional anger, like throwing things or just, you know, he just couldn't emotionally regulate himself. So I knew it was bad, but I just kind of waited it out. And it wasn't till later when we got, when he got out of the army and we moved to Arizona and we were arguing and I finally just kind of stood up for myself. I usually just kind of let it go through. And then he tackled me to the floor. And I was, when I was on the floor, I just had this like moment of clarity of what is this? What is this life? What am I doing here? Like what is happening right now? So when he got up and went to work, I just packed up my suitcase. I remember calling my childhood best friend and like, I'm leaving. This is crazy. And she was relieved and happy. And like, I knew you would when it was enough. She's like, but if you do this, you know, do this and don't look back. And so I remember just packing all I could threw it in my car. And I drove 14 hours by myself with my kids all the way back to wow. Utah. And so I think that was the moment for me that all of a sudden I could see clearer. And I think too, like being in the army and having two kids under two and all that, I I was purely in survival mode for those three years. And I think when when we moved to Arizona, I became less numb and I became more myself. And my kids were getting older and I was more aware. And that's when I realized, okay, this is... This is not good. We are in trouble here. <laughs> yeah. So we separated at that time and I was kind of contemplating whether or not to go back to my marriage. And, you know, he told me some secrets during that time that I wasn't prepared for. So I was really blindsided by a lot of different situations and whether or not I should go back. But I prayed really hard and I had such a strong feeling to go back. So, and something I didn't want to do, I was like, oh, you know, are you sure this is what I'm, what I need to do? And I remember praying and saying, okay, like I will go, but my life, I'm putting my life in your hands. And I, and I said those words, my ex flew 
to Utah and then we drove back together back to Arizona. That's a hard answer to receive. It was because I was pretty set on divorce. Some of the secrets I exposed, and I won't go into that because I think those are my ex's secrets. I will keep that private, but it was horrifying to find out. And um, I remember hearing it and just feeling like, I don't know this person. This person is a stranger to me. I don't know this. I was living a lie these last five and a half, six years. I don't know the what is, you know, what was happening this whole time. That was really heavy. And just, you know, and having friends' opinions too, like, oh, you can't go back and you know, da, 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 and yeah. kind of weighing everything. But that was the answer I received. And it was so strong that I just knew that I just had to see it through no matter what happened. Wow. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's why you stayed as long as you did was because of your answer? No, I think in the beginning, it was really the hope, like when we were in the army, that things would get better because I just kind of put it like, okay, the army's really stressful. When he gets out, he'll have a job that's more chill. Our kids will be a little bit older. Life will probably feel, feel a little less crazy. I'm just going to hold on to that hope of light that once we get out, it will be okay. Yeah. So when it wasn't in Arizona and like, I'll come back to more later what happened, that's when I kind of realized, oh, it's, it's, it's not getting better. (laughs) Yeah. I just read this book called anxious people and it was talking about this brother and he has a sister who's an addict and they were saying the addicts are addicted to their substance and the family members are addicted to hope. The person can't get out of their funk or whatever. And you as this victim of domestic violence is addicted to the hope that maybe this is just a time or season or maybe things will get better when the job's not as stressful or when all those different kind of things. Absolutely. And I think too, it wasn't all bad. You know, it wasn't like I was in this crazy physical abusive relationship for seven years. It only got abusive at the very end. I mean, it was emotionally abusive. He was very controlling and I felt like my emotions were never validated and I felt crazy a lot in a relationship. I would text my friends and be like, am I crazy? Let me know. But it wasn't all bad. And so I saw a glimpse of the person that I fell in love with. We would laugh or we go on dates and, you know, it was kind of like a roller coaster. Like some times you hit those highs, like, oh, wow, we're like, I feel happy. And then all of a sudden it will crash. And then yeah. you go up again and you're like, oh, like we're doing okay. And then you crash. So it wasn't a continuous bully beat down type of situation. Yeah. There was definitely moments of, oh, we're good. I feel happy. We can get through this. And then unfortunately the bad just kind of took over the good. Do you think that's why it's easy for people to make excuses for their abusive partners because of the good times? Yeah, I think you kind of hold on to that. And I mean, depending on what they're like too, they can, you know, if they did something, be like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, give you that hope that they will change. You're like, "I'll, I'll do better or I'll get help and I will change. Yeah. Or you just, like you said, you just kind of holding on to that false hope that things would get better, like will get better. And especially if you have kids involved, you're hoping that for the sake for the kids that it will all work out as well. Yeah. So if you could go back in time when you were dealing with all of this craziness and 
and give yourself advice. What would you say to yourself and what do you think would have helped you get out sooner? I don't know. When I look back on it, I feel like I got out at a good time because of my kids' ages. I think if I were to give advice, I would say probably that first year. It's hard to say because I have kids and I don't ever want, you know, like I'm so grateful for them. But that first year I felt like there was things I've, that I saw that I just kind of was like, oh, okay, we're just going to like keep working to get better. But maybe I could have called it quits at that time. <laughs> You're like, you know, my advice for all of you people out there is get out before you have kids. But you yeah. know, you're not sad that you have kids. Exactly. Like- it's hard to say because I'm so grateful for my kids. I Also, too, like I remember when we were living in Georgia in his training, he came home and was like, yeah, like totally choked out this guy. I like blacked out. And before I know it, like he was in a headlock. And I like snapped Ooh. out of it and I was just like trying to play it off. And to me, that's huge. Like looking back, I'm like, oh, that's pretty scary. But at the time, I think I was just more concerned with his job. I was like, whoa, like you got to reel it in, soldier. Don't do that again. You know, like wow. anyone see you, I wasn't really paying attention to like what really happened. I was just more concerned that he was going to lose his job. And that was a huge red flag of the first time I actually seen him be physically abusive towards someone. And I just kind of didn't see it. Yeah. I can't relate to the situation, but I do think that you, you use your spouse so much as a sounding board and what they think becomes more normal for you. And maybe you started having a warped perspective of what was normal. Yeah. You get stuck in patterns. You know, you get used to patterns. You see, okay, he's explosive. He'll come down. We'll say, sorry, we'll talk it out. We'll try better and then explode. And it becomes a pattern that you get used to and you're used to the pattern. You know how to work it. So when things happen, you know what the next step is. And it's hard to break those negative patterns in marriages. You have to work really hard and you have to identify them as well together. I think I identify them, but I don't think my ex did like, oh, this is what I do. This is my pattern. I think you get kind of stuck in that, especially if you're used to a pattern like that from your childhood. It's like your body and your mind's used to that. I think like what you said, you just kind of turn to your spouse and as a sounding board, or you're used to just the conditions of your marriage and you become more numb to it. Yeah. What would have been helpful for people to do to help you in your situations? And is there anything friends could have done to better support you? Um, I feel really lucky. I feel like I have really, really good friends, but a lot of them didn't really know what I was going through. I kept a lot to myself because I knew it was bad. (laughs) So it's usual for girls to go out and kind of like vent about things. But I just, I kind of kept a lot to myself. I would try to be vulnerable and like share stuff when I can, but only probably like two of my closest friends kind of got more of a glimpse of what was really happening. Check on your funny friends (laughs) with all the jokes. They're probably hurting the most. (laughs) I feel like I use sarcasm and laughter and as a coping mechanism through my trials. There was not, I feel like they supported me in every way possible. I feel like I had really good friends in the army that we just became family and we were all going through things. And I have really good friends that I've had since childhood and 
really good friends from high school. So I think that I really turned to them all the time for that emotional support because I wasn't getting it in my marriage. But at the same time, I wasn't exposing everything that was happening. Sometimes it's funny because I I guess I did say stuff because some of my friends would be like, oh, remember when this happened? And I'd be like, no, not until you, you know, not until you're bringing this up. So I guess I did. They're like, yeah, that was really bad. And I was like, yeah, that was bad. But I think too, as a friend, it's kind of a thin line you're walking because you want to be supportive of your friend, but you can't just be like, well, you need to divorce him, you know what I mean? And project what you want to happen onto them because it is their relationship and their marriage. I think you can try to give advice and how to make things better, but it is kind of like a weird line of, yeah, you can't just say any friend that you have that has like a controlling husband, you should just get out of your marriage now, like get away from them, you know? Yeah. And you don't always see the full situation. Different personalities work differently. There's a hard element of this is none of my business versus when do you step in to be like, okay, we need to help you. Yeah. And towards the end, I call it before the main event, before things really took off abusively. I was trying, I was getting my ducks in a row. I remember texting friends in Utah asking if their basement is available to rent. So I was kind of like starting to realize that this was a situation I didn't want to be in anymore and trying to get things squared away before I made an exit. But I wanted to make sure that I can go somewhere and be secure before I did that. Yeah, no, that Um, makes sense. What are some warning signs that a friend or a loved one is being physically or verbally abused? What are some things that people could just look for? Yeah, this is hard because I have... A really good poker face. Even my therapist said my poker face is pretty elite. <laughs> and that comes from a lot of practice of going out in public and acting like things are fine. Pretending a lot of people were shocked when they found out what happened in my marriage because we would go out and people thought we were solid. We went to church all the time. We had friends. From the outside perspective, it looks like we were this amazing couple. And I was able to just turn it on and off easily. You know, I got really good practice at that. So it's really hard to identify, but for other people, maybe if they are more isolated, if they don't come out as much, if they have low self-worth or low self-esteem, that comes from emotional abuse and physical abuse as well. So looking for things like that, maybe getting a sense that they're losing hope or maybe more depressed. Those are some signs that you can kind of what's going on. It's hard to tell. It depends on the person and how they handle it and and what's really going on behind doors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to explain what happened towards the end? Yeah. Okay. So I moved back to Arizona and things were getting better. I mean, he wasn't as angry, but still really controlling. And when I say controlling, like I'll give you an example. Can you give us a little bit of a timeline? So you packed everything up. And how many years had you guys been married then? And then how long did you go back to try to fix things? We were married for five years at that time when I separated and came to Utah. But we were only separated for about two months, I want to say, or maybe like a month and a half. So then I went back, beginning of 2018, came back. So then we were in Arizona and things were doing okay for about a year, I would say. 
So then towards the end of 2019 is when I kind of realized that that this marriage wasn't it for me. <laughs> you know, I was very lonely in it and all the other problems and issues and the control and the emotional abuse. Like if I were to say something like a different perspective, like he would say, oh, you know, you seem emotional right now. I'll come back to you when you're not. When we're just talking like this or, oh, are you about to start your period? You seem kind of irrational. Stuff like that where I feel like I always felt like my perspective was it was crazy if it was different than his, you know? And he kind of talked down to you. Yeah. Like I would tell him all the time, like, I'm not your private, like we're equals. I'd say like, oh, it's your world. I'm just living in it, <laughs> you know, because he was just very controlling and you need to take off your makeup fast. And you think like, oh, I can stand up for yourself. But at that point, I'm just like, you're just tired. Like I'm exhausted from this. Like, and towards the end, I think he kind of felt that I was getting over kind of over it because he would be like, well, I'm going to sleep in another room. And I'd be like, do it. No one's talking <laughs> to you. <laughs> You're like, good. I'll, I'll have a nice big bed to myself. Yeah. I was like, I don't care anymore. You do you, sir. I'm, I'm finished. So at that point, I think when I started stop caring, I realized, can I live in this marriage for the next 40 years? No. Like I said earlier, I was trying to like reach out to friends and kind of see if, you know, I can move out. And we were talking one day, it was a Sunday and I, I kind of just said it. I was like, you know, I really feel suffocated in this marriage. I'm, I think I want out. I'm exhausted. I'm tired and I want to be done. And so we kind of got an argument and, you know, he threw statistics at me like of divorce kids and we'll ruin our kids' lives and all the things. And I'm like, okay. Fast forward later that day, he told my son that he would play a game with him and he was just not playing. He was just in the other office and ignoring him. So he was four. So he was four and my daughter was three. So I went in there and I was like, hey, Bronson wants to play a game. And how old was your son at this point? He was in there for hours, like three hours playing this video game. So, and I know because he was mad at me and I was like, Hey, you promised Bronson he's waiting for you coming out. And then he started to get really condescending. And so I looked over and I saw the plug to the computer and I pulled it and I'd never done anything like that in my marriage. And as soon as I did it, I just took a step back and I just had that like moment of, Oh my gosh, I'm toast. Like I just knew it. And so he got up and my ex is, to paint a picture. He's a big guy. He's like six, six and like two thirty. So just to like paint, he's not like, not that if you're small, you can't be strong, but he's a, he's a big dude. You know, <laughs> he's a big guy. Starts walking towards me. So I calmly walk out and then he starts to follow he's me. A big guy. And then he kind of leans me yeah. into, we had like a kitchen Island. So he kind of lean, like pushes me into it. And so I kind of, I go with the momentum thinking like, okay, I'm just going to go with it. And he pulls out and then we walk over and he shoves me on the couch. And so at this point, I'm like, I'm just staying as chill as possible. And I've learned that over the years with him, like when his emotions would go high, I really learned how to stay calm and stay chill. Um, So I, you know, he threw me on the couch. I just stayed there, stayed calm. He's kind of talking at me. I don't remember what was being said. Then Bronson comes over to check on me. And he's, so he comes over like, mom, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. At that point, my ex takes my son's hands and starts hitting me with my son's hands. Which is a important part that plays in later, like 
when my kids went to therapy, that was something that was constantly brought up on my side. It was very traumatizing for him, as you can imagine, as a four-year-old. So I'm telling my ex, like, stop, let him go, you know, don't do this to Bronson. This is between me and you. So I get up and move. And at this point, I go back to the kitchen. He starts to follow me. And so I turn around and I said, I don't feel safe. Like, I need you to leave. Go for a walk. Go get food. Do what you need to do. But you need to get out of the house. Like, this is not a safe situation. And, like, for a moment, I saw him relax. Oh, maybe I should leave, you know? And then I saw him rise up again. And so as soon as I saw his body tense up and him start to rise, at that moment, I made a game plan in my head. I was, I was thinking, okay, if he's not going to leave, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go in my room. I'm going to get my shoes. I'm going to grab the kids and we're going to leave because I do not feel safe right now. I walk to our room and we're like a one story, one level house. So I go into our room. I pick up my shoe yeah. before you know it, I'm thrown on the bed and then I'm laying there. And then all of a sudden he puts his um, forearm against my neck and he holds it there. And this is like never happened to me before or in my marriage. So I was just like, what the heck? Like my mind couldn't really process what was happening. And then as soon as I realized it was getting tighter and longer and I couldn't breathe, my body just kind of went into panic mode. And so I hit him on the side, let go. I can't breathe, you know, and that panic set in. Oh my gosh, like this is, this is pretty serious. (laughs) So he pulls up and he grabs me and I'm not like a really small girl. I'm like five, nine, like an athletic build. So this is just how crazy strong he is. He takes me and he throws me. It was like a movie, like across the room where my back hits the wall. And then I land on my stomach So at this point, I think it's done. I think we're over. It has to be, this is finished. And before you know it, I felt punches on the back of my head. So he's just going to town. So I hurry and take my hands and block my head. So my wrists are getting most of it. And then he flips me over and then he starts to strangle me. So at this time in my head, I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is the second time. This is not good for me. (laughs) You know, like, uh, this is bad news. So I start looking around to see if I can like hit him with something, but he's big and I'm definitely overpowered and I'm trapped. The the craziest part about this whole story is like how unafraid I was to die. Like to my therapist about it. I'm like, is that messed up? Like, I think because I worked so hard in my marriage to be a good wife and to make his life less stressful and do all the things I like, did everything, everything I could in this marriage that it honestly felt like a sweet escape of reality. Honestly, I was like, well, I lived, I'm good. I can go, you know, back home to my Heavenly Father. I really was thinking that. And well, and isn't that such a sign of abuse that it's emotionally, you were so torn down that you got to that point that it was oh maybe this would be a good good thing I felt like I lived a whole life honestly so at that moment it was very interesting and I haven't told a lot of people this part but I got very clear instructions how to live I remember laying there and I heard a voice say keep your eyes open keep your mind sharp don't stop thinking and then don't gasp for air just take really small breaths. Wow. 
And it was very, very clear. And I just remember keeping my eyes open. And when your eyes are open and you're staring at someone's eyes who takes your agency away, (laughs) that's trying to literally kill you. It's a very weird moment. I don't know how to explain it. It's very intimate in some ways, but very like surreal, especially someone that I was married to and seeing their face and then you're just staring at him in the eyes. And it like seems like a scene out of like a horror film, right? You're like, how is this my life? How is this the person that I trusted to take care of me and love me? And that's the father of my children that is literally trying to kill me right now. Yeah. My brain had a hard time processing it. And so at that moment, I was like, well, you know, this is it. Even though like I was following the instructions, I kind of was like, meh, like, We'll see how this goes. But then it wasn't until I looked over and I saw my two kids. And so they were they were watching this. They were watching this. And I heard. Oh, that breaks my heart. I heard them screaming. And but it was very muffled because I think my just everything. It was just like background noise. And I see them run out of the room and I can hear Leah screaming, daddy is hurting my mommy. Daddy's hurting my mommy. And at that moment, I realized I have to live. Like I, I need to live. And so I looked at him and with everything I had, I just said, you know, please don't do this to our kids. They need their mom. And that's all I said. Then he like, probably like five seconds went and he let go. And I think it it hit him what was really happening. You know, if this did go through, our kids would be, you know, orphans. He would go to jail. I think the consequences kind of hit fast. I don't know exactly. I'm not in his body, but it just seemed that way. So he let go, immediately starts to yell at me that it's my fault. And then I just lay there just trying to breathe. Honestly, I was just like wrecked. And so. Oh, I bet all that adrenaline from. I can't even imagine what yeah. your body, the state your body was in. So I'm laying there, and then all of a sudden, I kid you not, I felt a force push me up. It was almost like I just got up like nothing even happened. Like I just got up from tying my shoe. It was like this crazy experience of me just bloop, plopping up after everything that happened. Wow. And I just became super focused. I grabbed my shoe I, gr- I ran to my kid's room. I picked both of them up and I just ran outside. And the moment I w- ran outside my front door and the fresh air hit me, I all of a sudden felt safe. Like I made it. I made it out. My, na- my neighbors are out here. You know, someone, he can't just kill me out here in public, you know. So I, I throw, you know, I put my kids in the car. I buckle them up. They're all crying. I'm trying to breathe still. We're, and I just oh my gosh. take off in the car. And I'm hyper, at this point, I'm like hyperventilating, just trying to catch my breath. So I, I drive a couple of streets down, I pull over and I call my childhood best friend that we've been best friends since we were nine. And I just, I call her first and I just was like, oh my gosh, you know, my, my ex tried to kill me. And I just like lay it out, you know, and I, I can't breathe. And She's like, just she starts bawling and she's freaking out. And she's like, okay, I'm going to call your mom. Just stay on the side of the road. Don't go back to the house. So then my mom calls and she was out on a girl's trip at this time. So she's with her five closest friends that I've known my whole entire life. So I 
tell her what happened and I can hear all the women just explode, you know, like just everyone's in panic mode. So I go to a friend's house and I call my friend Paige and she was actually at tithing settlement. My car is, and I'm like, Hey, and she could tell like something was really wrong. And I said, I'm at your house. I have a really big favor to ask you. I was like, but it involves some pretty heavy things. Are you up to be involved in it? You know, that's kind of how I dressed it. And she's like, yeah, of course. She's like, let me leave. So she comes over and she's just shocked about the whole thing. Because like you said, a lot of people, you know, they don't know it will go to this extent. Well, and it hadn't really been that physical till then, right? Yeah, that was the first time it was super explosive physically. So at this point, I'm getting 15 missed calls from my ex. And just like, if you don't tell anybody, we can just get a divorce. I can keep my job. You know, and when I wasn't answering, I'll, I think I answered like hourly. I was like, you tried to kill me. This is done. And he's like, oh, but I love you. And just trying to like, I feel like he was so good at trying to manipulate the situation of let's just push this on the rug and we can like figure it out, you know? <laughs> so yeah, kind of didn't mess with me. I'm like, do I call the cops? Is that the right move? What do I do? And then I was like, I don't know. And I looked at Paige and she's like, I can't, you know, you need to make this decision. This, you know, this is huge. Yeah. So I decided to call the police, which obviously is a good move. If you are in this situation, please call the police. <laughs> this is what, you know. So you call, I called the police. They came over and it's very interesting. They do like this whole survey, what happened, what was said. And it, they asked me what was said because just to get an idea of there was really was suffocation and Fortunately for me, he did say the words like, this is what real suffocation feels like when he was strangling me. That was referenced back to earlier that day when I said that I was suffocating in my marriage. So looking back, I'm like, oh, wow, that tied in like really well together. Like, <laughs> Wow. But anyway, so they're like, okay. I mean, it's a very interesting process. And then they were like, okay, we'll come back. And they came back, they took pictures, but everything that was done was very done well physically against my body. Like the way he strangled me, there was no bruises yet. He did it with his forearm against, you know, my throat where he punched me. You couldn't see it was very like well designed, you know, like, I don't know if he planned it or not, but it was very like well-placed. So I kind of felt dumb. Like I looked like a wreck, but you couldn't see any signs. So then I kind of started doubting. Are they? Do they believe me? Do they think I'm making this up? I started feeling like they weren't going to believe me for some reason. Well, there have in the history of the world, a lot of women have not been believed for th- a lot of things. So I don't think that you're at a fault for questioning or wondering if people would believe you. Yeah. It's like a weird thing because it happened, but then all of a sudden you're like, they don't believe in this, you know, but they never acted that way. It was just my head, you know, my thoughts just kind of going through it. So they went back to that house uh, to go back and my ex didn't answer. So they flashlight through the house. I only know this because my neighbor told me the next day, but yeah, he has, I mean, we had two guns in our house. Like he has AR-15 rifle and like a handgun. So I was nervous and they asked and I was like, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he has guns there. So I was kind of nervous about that situation. It was fine. So I slept in, I slept over at Paige's house the next morning. He's like, I'm, you know, I told him my dad was going to fly out. So my mom called my dad. My dad bought a ticket to fly to Arizona to help me pack up and like get out of there. So I told him, I was like, my dad's coming the next day. 
can I trust that you're going to work and I can go to the house and like pack my stuff? And he's like, definitely calmed down at this moment. He's like, yeah. So he texts me early. He's like, I'm on my way to work. The house is free. So I went over there and I was like, I was pretty nervous. Cause I was like, I hope he's telling the truth, but I, I felt like he was. So I go over there, but then I was nervous too. Like, what if he just shot himself or what if he's there about to shoot me? You know, you're just kind of going through these crazy narratives that can happen. But I walked in, it was empty. And then my friend, Annie, who was with my friend Paige during tithing settlement, she could hear my voice and she knew something was wrong. So she texted me, she's like, hey, can I bring you dinner tonight? And I was like, hey, I'm actually leaving town. <laughs> so she take, she takes my kids, which was super nice, takes my kids. I pick up my dad, we pack up all my stuff. And then when before I left, Paige and Annie came over with like tons of bags of food and road trip snacks and road trip toys so my kids can be entertained. It was like such a blessing. And then, yeah, we drove 14 hours back to Kaysville, Utah from Tucson, Arizona. Wow. Yeah. So and then about three months later, he got arrested at work, but it was like primetime COVID and he was only there for 16 hours and then they released him, which was fine. Like, I didn't he got arrested because of this yeah event. because of this okay. incident but for me it was like i rather him pay child support and alimony than be in jail so i wasn't mad that he wasn't in jail other family other of my family members beg a different but i feel fine about the arrangement so and then from there i moved home and the healing process began <laughs> wow yeah I am so sorry that you had to go through all of that. That just like seems like a surreal experience that you had. And I'm so glad that you had close friends that just like rallied and dropped everything and were there for you and were able to help you during that time. Yeah, it, I did too. I really did have a huge support system through that all. And it's interesting, like you said earlier, tying it back to domestic violence and stigma because you know, one of my friends I texted and was, and was telling her what happened. And she, she was like, I don't get it. I think domestic violence is tied to stigmas that you don't think it could happen to your like close friends that are educated and go to church every week. And you don't think that's linked, but it can and it is. Yeah. Have you read the book Big Little Lies? Have you ever read that book? No, I haven't. It's really good. In there, there's this couple and they're kind of this wealthy family and everybody, they're both really good looking and he ends up having these exploding events and he'll hurt her and then he'll buy her jewelry and different things like that. And then finally she ends up going to the safe house. They were asking her all these questions and she was kind of like, no, I'm not like the other women that get abused. I'm different he would hurt her but make sure he never like hurt her face so that people would know you know reading that book made me think a lot about this and how many women no matter what what your background is what your education your socioeconomic status there are a lot of people that are suffering in an abusive relationship and I think it's easy to look at others and say, this is different because X, Y, and Z. But I'm really proud of you for, you had this one exploding event that was super scary and that you were just like, we're done, I'm gone. And that you that you got out because I think that there's a lot of women that for lots of different reasons aren't able to to do that. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I was lucky that I have a family that I can move in with. If I didn't have that, I think about that. Where would I go? Would I go to a shelter or would I go back? I had the detective that worked on my case was very straight with me about the whole situation. He called me one day and about when I moved back to Utah, I was checking in, making sure I was safe, what my plans were, things like that. And I remember him saying, uh, Haley, you seem like a smart girl. He's like, so I'm going to be straight with you. He's like, if you go back, your chances of getting killed increased by 700%. Wow. Because when I look at your case, there's homicide and then you're right under the line. He said, so you barely made it out. And he said, and usually when this happens, it will happen again. And because it was so extreme and it was almost a homicide, you're going to be dead. Wow. And I took and I took that seriously. I did. I was like, okay. And obviously the trust was definitely broken. I don't think I could sleep to someone next to someone who tried to take my life. But right. um, yeah, but I, I think there's a lot of factors into why women don't leave. It's, you know, they don't have anywhere to go. And I think there's also a real feel a real fear that the abuser will use violence that is lethal if the victim decides to leave. Um, I also think that women look at the hardships of single parenting and financial strain. So that's another setback. I think that their fear of their children being hurt or killed, or they're, you know, if they leave, they'll be followed. Also, like confusion of emotions, like good memories and bad memories, and just holding on to that hope we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, The list can go on or, you know, even religion, divorce has a bad stigma in some religions like, oh, you can't get divorced, you know, and so that keeps them in abusive marriages as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of things. So, you know, you look at women, you look at movies, and you're like, oh, why don't you leave? Yeah, it's, you know, but there's a lot more to it than just a black and white situation. Totally. Mm -hmm. You mix violence and intimacy and all of these things and, you know, relationships that spouses have and being able to little things that you are able to forgive and get over being intimate with your spouse helps you add things that are not normal. And then you such like a interesting dynamic that I think people kind of get trapped in this almost warped perspective of and who they are and their self-worth, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, I was very like fortunate early on in my marriage that I was able to separate the two. I was able to separate myself to what my ex said to me. And I feel really blessed I was able to do that because I think through it all, I came out still with like confidence who I was as a person. And that doesn't happen a lot. So I, I do feel lucky that I was able to like put him in a category and put me in a different category. And be like, okay, like, yeah, that that is awesome. I'm not crazy. I'm not these things. I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. Like this don't this is, doesn't match, you know, and I think I think that just comes from earlier trials and experience that I've had that was able to me to have like able to give me that mindset. But yeah, a lot of times when you're in an abusive emotional or physical relationship, you get confused of what your what reality is and who you are and what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were in your darkest days and felt like you had hit rock bottom 
if you could talk to that version of yourself and give yourself a pep talk, what do you think you'd say? Yeah, when I look back, I think the darkest days was probably in Louisiana when I was an army wife and had two kids under two and my ex-husband wasn't there at all. I think honestly what kept me going was my religion and just prayer and hope and faith. I definitely put my energy towards friends and you know, my church callings and service and things like that to like help me get through. But also, you know, if we're talking about afterwards, I think that, you know, that was my darkest days during, but I think afterwards going to therapy and really diving into the healing process. When I got home, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, not only from, you know, what happened physically, but the seven years of my marriage. And I had nightmares at night um, for a long, you know, as soon as I got home or I would just be, you know, somewhere and all of a sudden I would like black out and I would just be there in the scene and just like watch it like a movie. It was very crazy. And so, you know, I felt fine. Like I honestly told myself, like, oh, I'm fine. I wasn't, but I just told myself I was. I think going to therapy, doing trauma therapy, I did EMDR really, really healed everything inside, processing it all, going through it all. When I think about that, here I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, and now I'm in a position where I don't, it has no control of me. I could talk to you about it on a podcast. You know, it's just like a chapter in my book. I think that's really amazing. So if you have been in, you know, whatever traumatic experience that is, I highly recommend going through the healing process and, and, and seeing it through because people want to give up on it because it's hard to surface all those feelings and emotions and going back to, you know, the hardest days of your life. But if you stick with it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'm so proud of you for doing the work. And I think because you've done the work, you're able to be able to talk about it and be able to help so many people. So what would your advice be if somebody who's in an abusive relationship, what's what's your encouragement to them? I think if you're in an abusive relationship to know that there is light on the other side and that you're not weak for leaving. If you have to get help from family and friends to leave, to rely on them. If you have someone to talk to about the situation, it is scary because there's an area of the unknown with this kind of situation of what can happen in the future. But I, I do feel like it's better to get out and be safe than stay in and continue in that, you know, that cycle. But you know, it's hard to say because everyone's situation is different. But yeah, I would definitely encourage to to find to get your ducks in a row and yeah. and try to find a way out. Tell us a little bit about your plans for the future and how you think that this experience will help you. I went back to grad school. I'm getting a master's in marriage family therapy through Abilene Christian University. They're based, they're based out of Texas. I'm doing their online program. Yeah, and I honestly decided to go pursue therapy because of my therapy experience. I thought it was really cool watching the healing process firsthand and a client perspective. I loved my therapist. She was amazing. And she's like, you know, you, you'd be good at this. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, I yeah, because I came to the point where it's like, well, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, which won't get me very far, but I could get a job or I could pursue a career. So 
I decided to go back to grad school and yeah, pursue being a marriage family therapist. That's awesome. I think you'll be great at that. And I guess your poker face will help you in case somebody tells you something that (laughs) you need to have a poker face for, right? Yeah, definitely. So what do you wish people knew about domestic violence? I think it's easy to blame yourself to like go over every little thing of what you could have done better. And you just have to remember that people have their free agency to choose and behave and that's not on you. You know, if you don't ever deserve to be physically or emotionally abused, no matter what. There shouldn't be a reason where you think like, oh, I deserve this. You don't, you know, it's not your fault. And to get out, you know, if you can. That's good advice. I like that, that, you know, when you said that, I feel like my boys hit each other and obviously it's a different situation. And they'll be like, you deserved it. And I'm like, no one ever deserves to be hurt. Mm-hmm. And I think there are certain personalities that it's, you got out quick, but I think there are a lot of personalities that keep making those, those excuses and it's hard for them to get out. And I think one thing I learned from you is I think it's important to be the type of friends to our close friends that they feel like that, that you could be the friend that they call to say, I need help. Come help me. But I have one last question for you, and that's the question I ask everybody. And that's, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? Yeah, when I think about this question, I I don't know. Like, it's hard because through all of the pain, I had a lot of joy. I mean, I had I have two beautiful kids. I made really good friendships. I had a lot of tender mercies along the way, a lot of spiritual experiences. So it's hard to be like, hey, don't go on that blind date. (laughs) You know, I feel like don't do that. When you are going through hard things, if it's not working out, then it's not the end. You know, everything will work out in the end. And I'm just saying in general, not really related to like domestic violence, but to just keep going, have more faith in yourself too. I think we're so hard on ourselves and so unsure, but go with your intuition and go with you know, what you believe is right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I loved hearing your story. You're such a strong, amazing woman. And I'm so proud of you for continuing to show up and be there for your kids and be willing to talk about your experience today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, yeah, I'm glad to talk about it and to get out in the open. If it helps someone, then, you know, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for listening to Letters to My Younger Self. If you could do me a favor and rate and review the podcast, that would help a lot to help people to listen to these amazing stories. I am so passionate about the wonderful people that I find, and I hope that more people can learn from them. So if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Thank you.